0: Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Letters 2 Podcast. In continuation of our Black History Month celebration, I would like to highlight two important women whose lives forever shaped the socio-political landscape of what would become the United States of America. I'll begin with the story of Elizabeth Key Greenstead. Elizabeth Key Greenstead was born in 1630 in Warwick County, Virginia, to an enslaved African woman and a white planter named Thomas Key. She was baptized in the Church of England and placed in in indentured servitude because she was considered an illegitimate child. However, her father did care for her and provided for her financially. Before his death, he placed her into indentured servitude with a man named John Mortem so that she would have legal guardianship until she was 15 years old and could marry. Around 1650, she met a white indentured servant named William Greenstead. They began a romantic relationship and had a son whom they named john the original terms of her indentured servitude contract were violated when she turned 15 years old and she was forced to continue to work under this contract for an additional 10 years at the time of john mortem's death elizabeth and her son john were listed as enslaved people in his will because they were black elizabeth immediately went to court to petition for her freedom and that of her son Her husband, William Greenstead, had finished his term as an indentured servant and became a lawyer. He would represent her in this lawsuit. Elizabeth was eventually able to obtain freedom for herself and her son based on three crucial factors. One, her father was a free man, and during that time period, social status was based on paternal lineage, meaning children were awarded the same social status as their father. Secondly, Elizabeth was a devout Christian and therefore could not be enslaved by other Christians according to Virginia law. Finally, the original terms of her indentured servitude were violated because she was forced to remain an additional 10 years. On July 21, 1656, Elizabeth and her son John obtained their freedom. Elizabeth and William had a second son and they remained married until William's death in 1660. Elizabeth died in 1665. Her case is important because it highlights the ways whiteness as a social construct emerged during the colonial period. Slavery was beginning to be considered necessary as a social condition for black people and people of color. The aftermath of her case resulted in Virginia changing their laws by removing the idea that Christians can't be enslaved and designating the social status of a child to the condition of their mother. As a result, white men could freely force themselves on black women who were enslaved and any resulting children would be enslaved like their mother. This would also remove all responsibility of these children from white men. The next person I'd like to share with you also went by the name Elizabeth. Elizabeth Freeman, also known as Mombet, is believed to have been born around 1744 in Columbia County, New York she had a younger sister named Lizzie. The two sisters lived on the plantation of Peter Hodgeboom but were given to his daughter Hannah and her husband John Ashley as wedding presents. Mumbet and her sister Lizzie moved to Sheffield, Massachusetts and endured much cruelty from their new enslavers. Mrs. Ashley was particularly brutal. One story suggests that Mrs. Ashley attempted to strike Lizzie with a red-hot kitchen shovel, but Mumbet, ever protective of her younger sister, shielded her and received the blow herself, which resulted in a severe burn that left a nasty scar. Instead of hiding the scar, Mumbet would show it off, and when anyone would ask what happened, she would say, Ask Mrs. This would embarrass Hannah Ashley, as it would reveal to people her cruel nature. Mumbet was not able to read or write, however, she was very intelligent, strategic, and charismatic. Her enslaver, John Ashley, was a successful lawyer in Massachusetts, and he was part of an elite group of men who had political discussions at his home. It was here that Bett overheard them discussing the newly ratified Massachusetts Constitution in 1780. When she heard the words, all men are born free and equal, she felt strongly and that this should apply to everyone and immediately sought out the help of Theodore Sedgwick, an abolitionist and lawyer who frequented the Ashley home cedric agreed to help her petition for her freedom but cautioned that they would have a stronger case if there was an enslaved male also petitioning for his freedom mumbet agreed and brahm another person enslaved by the ashleys petitioned for his freedom as well in 1781 the case of and bett versus ashley resulted in brahm and mumbet successfully obtaining their freedom based on the constitutional right to liberty Mumbet immediately changed her name to Elizabeth Freeman and left the Ashleys to work for the Sedgwick family. Elizabeth Freeman was a skilled nurse, midwife, herbalist, and servant. And now, as a free woman, she could charge for her highly-demanded skill set. Elizabeth Freeman continued working for the Sedgwick's and became a highly-respected member of their family. She purchased 19 acres of land and built a house and farm for herself and her children. When she died at the age of 85 on December 28, 1829, she was buried in the Sedgwick family plot near Theodore Sedgwick. Her case set precedent and resulted in Massachusetts outlawing slavery. What's interesting about these women is that they both represent the power and influence Black women have always had on society. These two women, who shared a first name, lived 100 years apart from one another during two defining eras, the colonial period and the beginning of the United States as a country. Each of these women used their intelligence to advocate for themselves and to obtain their freedom during a time when the freedoms of black people and women were limited and virtually non-existent. Although the case of one woman inspired the spread of slavery while the case of the other one inspired the end of slavery, the actions of these remarkable women illustrates to many the contributions black women have made to our rich history and further cements the legacy of black women who consistently lead our communities and evoke change. Elizabeth Key Greenstead and Elizabeth Freeman Are
1: two black women you should know Hello everyone, I'm Mark And I'm Nick I'm Sadie And welcome back to Letters 2 Podcast
0: Okay, so we have a very special episode today as we kick off our celebration of Black History Month. Uh, We'll be discussing critical race theory, and since we're not experts on the topic, we thought it would be beneficial to bring on someone who is. So please join me in welcoming Brian, who is the host of the Mentally Divine podcast on Twitter. Thank you for being here today, Brian.
2: Thank y'all so much for having me. Listen, I'm I'm always honored. Y'all like calling me, be like, yo, talk... I heard you talk about critical race theory and I'm like, I get honored for that type of stuff. So I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Yeah. Your
0: episode on critical race theory was very, very, you know, inspiring, informative. I really enjoyed it. And it was just what I was looking for. And like in terms of having a discussion on it. So um, that's definitely why we had to have you on our show. So could you give me a little bit of your background and how you ended up studying um, critical race theory? and education.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so, so my bachelor's is in political science, I graduated from Rutgers University in New Brunswick in New Jersey. Okay. Um, and then I got my master's in education. Um, And in getting my master's of education, we learned about critical race theory. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit about all of the different types of theories that are under the umbrella of critical theory, because that's where it actually originated from, but we'll get to that a little bit later. But so that's, we learned that in my master's program. And so it's very funny because nowadays you hear people talk about critical race theory. And it's like, Oh, well, they only, serve, they only talk about that in like law school and it's not actually accurate. Okay. Right. So we're going to talk a little about that, but yeah, that's, that's my background. Again, my hometown is Newark, New Jersey. I'm born and raised in the hood. First generation of my family to go to college. Um, and all of this is very important to me because I have the identities of people, you know, of, of the same students that I wanted to work with. First generation of my family to go to college, working with most marginalized populations, LGBTQIA, black, Latinx, Afro-Latinx is all in that. So that's my background. And I'm a student affairs practitioner. I work um, at a university here in Atlanta. So that's my background.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing your background with us. I can see why, you know, critical race theory um, is something that you're so passionate about. Um, Could you give us a little bit of background on critical race theory and what it actually is? Because there are so many misconceptions about it.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of misconceptions. So we're going to get into that. So what critical race theory actually is before we get that we have to zoom out right we have to zoom out and kind of talk about what critical theory is critical theory is any approach that focuses on reflective assessment and critique of society culture in order to reveal and challenge power structures that's an important uh, concept right talking about power structures and when we talk about critiquing them we're not talking about critiquing and blaming people Mm -hmm. we're talking about looking, interrogating, asking the questions, diving deeper and finding out the actual information as to, okay, you have inequities in healthcare. You have disparities in the law system. You have disparities in education, right? And you let's dive deeper and see why there's a, um, such a disparity. You wanna mm-hmm. talk about deficit approach, right? So usually when we have, when we talk about deficit approach in education, we talk about like, we always blame the student, like. Why is it that you're not getting this material? How are you not understanding? But when you talk anti-deficit models, you're actually critiquing the system, looking at the system. Where have we failed you that you are not understanding the material, right? So critical theory comes from these um, scholars in Germany, actually. One of the biggest key players in that was Max Horkheimer. One of the biggest things that he said was, he describes a theory as critical insofar as it seeks to liberate human beings from the circumstances that enslave them. Mm. Right. And so it's very important that when we're talking about critical race theory, it's very specific to race. Critical legal studies is what actually was the first step in critical race theory. And it actually started in law schools in the 1970s. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's why a lot of people just subscribe it to and prescribe it to. Oh, that only happens in law school that you learn it. No, it started there, but legal scholars looked at it. Critical legal studies was the first thing. And people looked at it and they were like, well, where is it, where are we getting it wrong? Why is it that disproportionately black people are being incarcerated, right? For instance, and when you looked at it, some scholars were like, yeah, we got to critique the laws. We got to critique the policies but this, this isn't getting us to where we need to go, mm-hmm. right? And they were like, let's look at the links of race. And then they were like, if we study race, race is what's going to get us there. And that's how critical race theory came out. Okay. Uh, they focused on race.
0: So who are some of the key uh, figures in critical race theory?
2: So some of the critical race um, theory, key figures, I'm going to go through, there's so many to list, but let's go with, um Kimberly Crenshaw first. Um Kimberly Crenshaw is a scholar and writer on civil rights, critical race theory, black feminist legal theory. She's actually a law professor at University of Columbia and Los Angeles, right? She actually coined the term intersectionality. Now, people always throw, now if you look at woke Twitter, yeah. Right, everybody want to talk about intersectionality. Everybody. But nobody knows where it started and who who started it and for what purpose was it intended? Mm-hmm. So intersectionality is a concept that talks about whenever you have multiple intersecting marginalized identities, right? So you and she started with her studies 1989, okay? She started those studies with black women, right? Because at the intersection of being black and being a woman, there are marginalized identities that coincide together. Mm-hmm that make you more oppressed and it's not the oppression Olympics right. people also get that messed up I don't can we curse on here yes you can way?
0: say whatever you want to say honey
2: so you know and I want to say this it's just as a side note Masters of education aside we, people don't, don't get that shit fucked up right like let's be real about some of these topics because oftentimes when we talk about these things we get very theoretical mm-hmm. and we get lost in the framework and the models how do we make this information palatable to people who may not understand exactly. it? Exactly. Right? So let's break it down, right? So Kimberly Crenshaw, intersectionality. She coined intersectionality. Richard Delgado, another one. Mexican-American, Chicano studies. Chicano studies and that theory as well. He's also a professor and chair of the law program at the University of Alabama, okay? And his expertise is civil rights, constitutional law, constitutional law and critical race theory. And he speaks about it from a different perspective. He's, he comes from the Chicano Mexican experience, Mm -hmm. right? And I wanna talk about Derrick Bell. Derrick Bell is another one, a big big one. Rest in peace, 2011, he he, he passed. But he helped to develop critical race theory as a body of legal scholarship that explores how racism is embedded in laws and legal institutions, and he was a boss. Like Derrick, Derrick Bell was a boss. I'm going to just explain to you real quick how much of a boss he was. Okay. He gave up his professorship. He was the first tenured black professor in Harvard University. Really? First and foremost, Yes. Wow. Derrick Bell. He gave up his professorship in 1992 to protect, to, I'm sorry, to protest the school's hiring practices, especially the lack of women of color on the faculty.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Right. In 1980, Bell was appointed Dean of the University of Oregon School of Law. He resigned in protest five years later after an Asian woman was denied tenure, this shit ain't new to him. This shit was true. To him. This shit
0: was
3: true to him. Yeah, he lived so, it.
2: You know, these are key. These are key figures, and there's a whole bunch of other ones. But I just wanted to talk about. That.
0: Okay, yeah, I actually in my research, Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw were at the top of you know key figures. So I'm glad you touched on them. Um, yeah, uh, I I remember I I'm always on Twitter seeing people talk about intersectionality, and I think. They kind of have the right idea about, you know, it involving multiple intersections of marginalized identities, but they go into the old oppression Olympics and are oftentimes fighting with each other about, oh, I'm more oppressed than you because of this and because of that and blah, 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 blah. So um, is intersectionality an important component to critical race theory?
2: It is. It is. Actually, one of the core uh, tenets, and, and I wanted to go into those. Okay, um, great. Yeah, Let's do Let's, it. Going into the core tenets. Let's do okay. it. Let's just go into it. right? So critical race theory, right? You have critical legal studies, then you get critical race theory. And then in critical race theory, we have to look at it. Because, again, critical race theory is a methodological approach. Mm-hmm. It's a framework. It's a model with which we can look and try to criticize, again, interrogate the systems of oppression. So the, the six ways we do that. One. The social construction of race and normality of racism. The fact that race is not real. Let's be very it's clear about that. It's not
3: biological,
0: people.
2: It's not biological. <laughs> race is not real. Racism or how people are racialized, that is mm-hmm. real, very real. So race is not real because, I mean, and and we'll talk about it later, Book resources is a great book called The Myth of Race by Robert Waldstead. <laughs> I talk about it all the time on my... Nick, if you can be coming to the show, like you know, I talk. Yes, to yes, on. yes. <laughs> so the so the myth of race, right? Myth of race talks about and breaks it down literally within the four words. The fact that if you look at the genetic kind of species, right, biologically speaking, you have species. Let's look at feline, for instance. Feline in the animal kingdom, it's a species. Under that, you got lions, you got leopards, you got cats, right? There are there is enough of a morphological, what they call morphological difference in the genetic code mm. for us to say when we're talking about mating, a, a house cat and a lion cannot mate. Right. They're considered subspecies. Right. Subspecies, biologically speaking, is what is considered races. If you look at human beings, right, barring medical abnormalities and all that, right, human beings don't have a disparate or a difference enough in the genetic makeup to say there are subspecies within the homo sapiens right right? which means there is no races there's no subspecies it was all created exactly articulated propagated and promulgated by what affluent white anglo-saxon protestant politicians philanthropists politics like anything Name it's it. crazy
0: because so, i remember learning about that in my anthropology i was an anthropology major in undergrad <laughs> so um when we talked about race they taught we and i we also t- um t- studied this in my biology classes too we talked about the fact that there are no um some some species of animals ob- obviously cannot mate with one another obviously if you're a different species you cannot mate with one another humans obviously can mate with one one another and in terms of the, our race, different race, racial races, I'm putting that in quotes because race doesn't exist. Um, there was this movement to categorize people, the eugenics movement, categorizing people based on their race, based on these physical attributes. But in doing so, they unfortunately misinformed so many people that race is an actual thing. Race is something that can be, um, classified biologically. And so many people to this day still have a misunderstanding of that. And I think it's so important right. that we we really drive that home, that race does not have any biological um, component to it whatsoever. Um, there are no... I mean, we may have certain morphological, you know, or not even morphological, but anatomical um, differences, but there are so many different genetics or genes at play that determine that you can't really assign a, a particular racial group to it because... I could have more in common genetically with a white man than another black man, generally speaking. So with that being said, race does not exist in the biological way that it has been perpetuated for, for centuries now, unfortunately.
3: Yeah.
2: So that's the first tenet, right? That acknowledging the fact that race is not real. Then the second tenet is that racism is real and part of the day-to-day life of Black people, people of color in general, right? And that it is based on an artificial association between a set of physical characteristics that have been imagined by white people. When we talk about white people, we're talking about people with Western European descent in the United States. It's important that we say that because, it's, it, you know, as we've seen right now, I don't know if you've seen on um, everything that's been going viral with Mitch McConnell, um, who was actually the leader of the Republican party being at his press conference. And he said, you know, African-American every, you know, the, there's a misconception because African-Americans are voting with the same numbers as Americans. Right. So Tony Morrison talks about it all the time, how if American equals white, everybody else has to hyphenate. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's unfortunate. So what we're going to say is we're going to say Western European descent. Okay. Cause that's where y'all weren't originally here. No. So, <laughs> so, uh, let's go to the third one. Interest convergence. Right. The idea that the legal advancement and the upward mobility of black people and people of color come with and are intertwined with the interests of white people. Otherwise, it doesn't happen. And I want to give a good example of this um, with Homer, v, uh, Homer Plessy. So Plessy v. Ferguson, that happened in 1896. There was a man who his name was Homer uh, Plessy. He was seven eighths white and one eighth black, and he was in a trail a uh, 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 trolley in Louisiana, and he was in a in the whites only uh, tr- uh, trolley, and they told they jailed him because they told him he had to go to the colored trolley. But again, he's seven eighths white, one eighth black, and so he was jailed for that. So they decided to use this as a test case. Ultimately, in the Supreme Court, they decided that separate but equal was was not unconstitutional, Mm. right? It wasn't until in 1954, you had the Brown v. Board of Education, where you had a unanimous vote that said, no, this is unconstitutional, separate but equal, cannot be constitutional. Now, the reason why I say that is very important. What's happening during that time period in 1954 is the Cold War, Mm -hmm. right? Where America was versus the Soviet Union, and they were trying to show that they were the leaders of the free world, that they were above everything. They were token, right? Because Soviet Union, right? People Cold War. Google it for folks who are listening. But Derrick Bell was a key figure, right? We talked about Derrick Bell. He argued, this is the biggest argument in interest convergence in critical race theory that has ever been made. He argued that the only reason the Supreme Court voted unanimously for the Brown v. Board of Education, you know, case to be to vote that is unconstitutional, separate but equal, was that one, elite whites were concerned about potential unrest of, uh, of black former soldiers who had fought bravely in World War II and the Korean War mm-hmm. when they came back, and then number two was that the world image of the United States would have been terrible, yeah, if. If they would have been like an egregiously racist country, which would have undermined the efforts that they were trying to show about the free world and all that picture against the Soviet Union. Now, people would say, yo, that's a conspiracy theory. Like, what you talking about? Like, what, what evidence you got? Well, let's talk about the evidence. Although widely dismissed at the time. Bell's view that the Brown decision was a product of interest convergence between whites and blacks was supported by later historical research, which indicated that the decision of the U.S. Department of Justice uh, to side with the proponents of desegregation was influenced by secret communications from the United States Department regarding the need to improve the country's image abroad.
3: Mm.
2: This, the main point is that white supremacy is not a conspiracy theory. No. And white supremacists have done such a good job at making people feel Gaslighting people, gaslighting motherfuckers, yes. into feeling like it's not real. It is real. It's very real, and that's a, actually a core tenet. Now, let me move on to the four, five, and six. Fourth is that members of minority groups periodically undergo differential racialization, which means prior to the 1950s, everybody, well, black people were categorized and and, and portrayed in media as childlike mm-hmm. servants, laborers, simple-minded that they were content with being enslaved they were content with being subordinate to whites Mm -hmm. right post the 1950s after the civil rights 1950s 1960s that challenged the unjust uh, domination of american society you had black men particularly be portrayed in media as criminals Mm. as people who were dominant right natural born criminals, criminals prone to violence or lazy leeches living off of social social welfare welfare programs again none of this is conspiracy mm-hmm. number 5 intersectionality we already talked about it marginalizing identities right it's literally a core tenant you said what's the importance in critical race theory it's literally the fifth core tenet and the sixth one is voices of color so when we talk about storytelling as a powerful tool it's very important black people and people of color when they storytell about their experiences of microaggression and racism they not making that shit up one and two the fact is that that storytelling is such a powerful tool to not only express express their expertise in living and navigating the world with racism, but also that it's a, it's a feeling of psychic preservation. And what that means is it's, it's their way of speaking back to the racism and preserving their mental health. These are the six tenets wow. of critical race
0: theory. That last thing you said is very powerful because, and black people have, and you know other marginalized groups as well have been like you say gaslit for so long, and whenever we have the opportunity to discuss our experiences, and now that we have more language to do so, um, it is it is very powerful, very cathartic. Um, yeah, that's amazing. So that's yeah, that's generally what. Those well, the, the those are the six tenets of critical race theory. And that's really what it kind of examines and how they go about. We go about studying critical race theory in this country. Um, you said you did mention earlier, too, that critical race theory, it's thought that critical race theory is taught only in law school. Um, how else is critical race theory taught in the United States? Um, what? education systems is it taught in are they teaching them based on the the six tenets of critical race theory or are they specifically focusing on different tenets um individually
2: well well yeah that's a good question and i was i was thinking about it from my perspective right because so for me just a little bit going back to to what we were talking about earlier Mm -hmm. i'm a scholar practitioner that's what i consider myself right so scholar comes first and i always look at what is the research stuff because i don't want to just talk about the anecdotal, right? Just my lived experience. I always say, just because I don't know something doesn't mean that it's not true. So I'm like, let me look it up. It is my understanding and I get the impression based on what the literature says, based on what the research says and what I'm looking at, that there's a misconception that critical race theory is being taught in uh, K-12 schooling. So elementary, middle school and then high school. No, that's absolutely not true. As a matter of fact, the schooling system in the United States has failed us majorly. One. Two, the fact is that Law schools are not the only ones that are teaching critical race theory because in my master's of education program, that's what I learned, right? I I mean, it wasn't all centered around critical race theory, but we learned the theoretical framework, queer theory being one, Mm -hmm. right? There's a whole bunch of other ones, but we learned those. And so it's not just law schools. I would say colleges and universities at a grad level, because even when you're getting your bachelor's, I never heard not once critical race theory being taught, at least not as a framework right? Mm -hmm. And you can be learning critical race theory, just not, okay, a professor saying, we're going to learn critical race theory and here are the six core tenets. Because again, you can learn the true history of the United States and that critical race theory. Exactly. Right? In in practice, in practice, right? Because you're critiquing and understanding from the genesis, from the inception of this country, how we got here.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: And that's the systems of oppression and power that we have to talk about. Um, But I also wanted to say this to the research. There's actually... Um in Wisconsin testimony before a joint meeting of the Assembly and Senate Education Committees in August. Representative Chuck Witchgers, Republican, um, one of the co-authors of the bill to ban the teaching of critical race theory, outlined a list of additional terms and concepts. So there's a whole list of terms that he wanted to ban from being taught in schools, upon which some of them are critical race theory, diversity, equity, and inclusion, anti-racism. Uh, cultural awareness, cultural competency, microaggressions, <laughs> white supremacy, whiteness, woke, systemic racism, systems of power and oppression. I mean, it's a whole long, long list. But clearly, if you are banning those terms, it's not being
0: taught. Exactly. And they understand that. They know that.
2: Now, Nick, I'm going to say this like, before we move on, because I know you have a lot of other questions. I will say this. There's a in Washington right? Because in doing the research, mm-hmm. Senate Bill 5044, mm-hmm. right? State of Washington. They actually passed it in May 2021. That bill is a critical race theory bill, just not called critical race theory, but it talks about centering diversity, equity, and inclusion, training for all levels of staff, for uh, teachers, superintendents, principals, vice principals, everybody. That's critical race theory. So some states are doing it right, but largely, is it being taught?
0: No. No. It's not being taught, and neither is actual history, <laughs> depending Period. on what school you go to. I right. I know for myself, I was fortunate enough to go to a predominantly Black Christian school when I was in, um, from the time I was in preschool to about the fourth grade. And we actually taught were taught by Black teachers about, you know, Black history, race, um, And different things that you would probably uncover in critical race theory if you were to study critical race theory, but when I when my family moved to a predominantly white area and we started going to the predominantly white public schools, that completely changed, and we weren't taught anything about Black history. I think the only thing uh, we were actually the only time we ever really discussed Black history was one time in the seventh grade when we went to go see the Harriet Tubman play. I'm sorry. In the eighth grade, we went to go see the Harriet Tubman play. And my teacher was like, "I was like, are we gonna read a, are we gonna read a book by an, a black author for FET for, um, Black History Month?" And he said, "Well, we took you all to see the Harriet Tubman play. Wasn't that enough?" And I was like, "Okay."
2: <laughs> see, and this is when I wish that some podcasts were audio visual so they could see the faces that we make when <laughs> we say this type of shit because this type of shit is crazy. Yeah, and people and people get
0: away with it. They do. And this was before we even had. I think teachers were even given sensitivity training on different, you know, working with diverse groups of people. Because right. again, I was in a predominantly white neighborhood. I was one of the few black people. I was definitely one of the only black people in like the gifted um, in, uh, course classes that that they had at the school. And we never talked about these things. And anytime we they were brought up, you know, the teachers were like, eh, "No, nah, we're not talking about that," or just completely ignorant to it because they didn't themselves didn't know anything about it. Right. So, right. That's our and this, and this and,
2: and this is what I want to say too as well. Just because you get a certain degree, I know people who have a PhD, who have terminal degrees, mm-hmm. whatever it is, who are dumb as rock. Yeah, I'm being honest with you. J- just because, listen, and I don't want to get people to get misconstrued. Co- I think you know there's co- people. Some people say college is not for everybody. You know, every some people don't like school. That's fine. College is very integral because it opens a lot of doors for you. I'm not. I'm not saying that just because I work at a university. I'm really just saying the amount of doors that have been open to me because I've gone to college, the people who I've gotten connected with. It's not even the stuff that you learn inside the classroom, stuff you learn outside the classroom, independent living, all of that stuff, that comes with it. So, But credentials, sometimes some people have the credentials and don't know because all they feel is like they want to use it for the title. They don't want to use it because they have the actual knowledge to now get in rooms and, and create and influence systemic change. Mm-hmm. Y'all just got the degree because you want motherfuckers to call you doctor. Yeah. Nah, bro. You got to commit to lifelong learning. This shit don't end. This shit never ends. This shit, there's new shit coming up. You got to use your platform, but whatever. Sorry, that's my little. <laughs> no, no, <tangent>. you're fine.
0: <laughs> it's cri- critical race theory has just become so politicized. Um, I'll be honest mm-hmm. with you, I had never heard of the the term critical race theory prior to to like maybe 2021 when it started being discussed in the media. Um, that's why I say it's interesting now that we have the language to describe how we're even studying race and. Um, in this in this in this uh in society now and i feel like conservatives are really pushing to demonize critical race theory i don't know if that's something mm-hmm. I, m- I might just be misunderstanding but that's kind of how it seems when you hear things like oh it's divisive and it makes black people hate white people and white people hate themselves and i don't see where any um anywhere in critical race theory where it it dis- it, it I don't know places the blame on white people specifically i feel like the focus is on systems and not necessarily individuals but correct you know correct
2: no you're not misunderstanding that at all it actually has become very politicized and here's my here's my biggest question i tweeted this Mm -hmm. the biggest question is this if you are a country that doesn't want to teach the true history of your country because you're afraid that if you teach the true history that people are going to then hate the country. Y'all got some motherfucking problem. They do. We do. <laughs> I mean, I mean think about that. Yeah. Like that shit is crazy. Like and so yes, it actually has become heavily politicized. And again, it's to uphold white supremacy. And again, we're not we're not attacking white people. We're attacking the concept of whiteness.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And that's different. You see what I'm saying? Exactly. Because white people, yes, did create the system White supremacists created the white the system of white supremacy. However, you know, we have to really interrogate the systems of oppression. Mm-hmm. It's not about attacking the people.
0: It's about attacking the systems of oppression.
2: Because sometimes some people are complicit in that. But, you know, that's a, conv- a conversation for another day.
0: No, I was saying, I, I, r- think, r- you know, I remember um, when I was doing my research, I heard uh, critical race theory be considered neo race. It's called neo-racism. And I was like, neo-racism do you all um, understand too. how racism works in the first place? If you, if black people and people of color and other marginalized groups are discussing their experiences, it's not neo-racism because racism by definition doesn't allow for us to exercise any any systemic power to oppress white people. So this can't be considered neo-racism. So I just right. thought that was an interesting um, criticism of uh, critical race theory. This was one of the critics of critical race theory.
2: Yeah, I think Mark, did you want to say you
3: had
1: an encounter? Yeah, there? I just I had an encounter with an Uber driver who randomly decided to give me his political opinion and randomly brought up critical race theory because I guess because he saw a black a black young man in the back of his car, he just gave me this whole spiel about how he hated the fact that his grandchildren would be going home to their parents and. Asking their parents if they're racist because they've learned some facts about critical race theory, which told them that they, that they're racist by default. And I was just like, I, I'm pretty sure. I'm kids aren't as dumb as we all think they are for some <laughs> reason. Kids are very intuitive. I doubt, I doubt they think that. But even if they do, that allows the parent to have a conversation. It's like, no, you're not racist. You, you're you're this you don't have to be anything just because you're white that opens up the conversation at home that i guess older white males are afraid of having well the younger this, generation and this is the thing right there's
2: a this is the biggest misconception. we just went down the core tenets of critical race mm-hmm. where in that does it say that anybody has to feel guilty and ashamed just because they exist in this world nowhere, nowhere. It, no, no, nowhere right so here's this here's the thing right it opens the door. What it does, it opens the door for great conversation to be had about why we're here and how we got here. Exactly, and then allows us to then dismantle the system. Kids are pretty. Sometimes they're even they're way more open than adults, by the way, mm-hmm. because they don't have the they don't have the reference points of life and experiences that already came with that, you know, with with living and being uh, indoctrinated, inculcated in their minds of racism. So they're more open to learn. Uh, Jane Elliott, great example. Yes. Jane Elliott and the bla- uh, brown-eyed, blue-eyed test, uh, at, you know, study that she did with her third graders. It's very, you know, it's a great example of how those third grade kids in the matter of three or four days learned w- about discrimination based, just based on the color of eyes. hmm and she, she had been doing that. She actually worked and lived in Iowa. And they actually chased her out because they gave her death threats and said, stop teaching our kids this. Stru- true story.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, <sighs> That's, yeah, mm. it's just crazy. I remember learning about her. I actually took a race and ethnic relations class in undergrad. And she was one of the topics we discussed, um, her method for uh, that she did with her third grade class. Because I think she still does these workshops um, in different with different groups, yeah, she did. I think she was on Oprah one time, and it was just interesting how quickly people were able to like fall into like into her experiment, like fall into these right. different categories and start oppressing one another based on whatever arbitrary trait that they you know selected for that day. And mm-hmm. just like yeah. clockwork, she was able to examine human behavior and how quickly we can easily start um, oppressing different groups of people, and when. Whenever she whenever people would discuss their experiences other groups were like oh no that's not true or i'm not this person i'm not i'm not a terrible person and it's like no one's saying you are what we're saying is the system affords you certain privileges while also marginalizing people like us and we want to end that yes
2: and as a matter of fact i love when she shut all that entire group of, of, of white people down she she asked one question and nobody could answer mm-hmm.
3: it.
2: She she said Please stand up or please raise your hand if you would like to be treated like a black person in America. Mm -hmm. And ain't nobody stand up. And she was like, I don't think y'all heard the instructions correctly. I'm going to say it again. Raise your hand or stand up if you would like to be treated like a black person in America. And when nobody stood up and nobody said anything, she was like, oh, so that gives me the impression that you understand how they're being treated and you don't you want to be treated the don't same don't want
0: it for yourself Nope.
2: <laughs> so why would you think that it's abs- that it's you know fine for them to experience
0: that mm-hmm. shut
2: them completely down but yeah she's she's amazing i
0: i think when we have these conversations for white people they understand the privileges that they're afforded and it's, some some m- most of them do i will say that there are some times where they they're, they may not consider something a privilege but when you point it out to them They'll sometimes either they'll either accept it or they'll say, no, that's not true. I think that's just, you know, it just happened that way. But one of the tenets of critical race theory is that racism is normalized. These are normal experiences. This is not this is not by accident. This is not by accident. This is by design. Bloop. <laughs> and I think that um, in having these conversations about privilege, I've witnessed so many white people start crying and getting upset. And wanting people to feel sorry for them for having this privilege, and I'm like, girl, I have to deal with this on a daily basis. How do you think I feel? Imagine how tired and exhausted I am. And you don't see me comp- You don't see me crying about it. But here you are, someone who has the ap- ability to use their their privilege to, you know, affect change on on some level. And instead of using doing that, you're just trying to save face, and in doing so, you know. You're upholding a system that continues to oppress so many people. So if you really do care, I would think that you would try and do something about it. But that's never really the case. They're always trying to, you know, negate everything that's being brought out when we talk about critical race theory and the issues surrounding it. Yeah. White guilt and white fragility. Right. Period. I don't know if you all saw that meme um, with Ruby Bridges and somebody was like, I think they said, you know, if, if, if. If our babies were young enough to experience it, then your babies are, you know, young enough to learn about it. Right. They said right, learn exactly. about it. They didn't say your babies are young enough to have revenge enacted on them. And I think that's that's another thing too. I think a lot of white people, we're only asking for equality and justice. <laughs> we're not asking for revenge. They're afraid of that. But though, that's what they're afraid way. of. Yeah, they're afraid yeah. of that. They, 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 they're afraid of the fact that, you know, their ancestors and people who look like them have for so long continued to perpetuate, create this system and perpetuate this system. And now that we're actually starting to address it and push back more, because we've always, Black people have always, don't get it twisted, we've always pushed back. We've always had different forms of resistance. Our enslaved ancestors were sabotaging crops sabotaging tools because in order oh, wait hold on oh, but hold on nick let me say this right mm-hmm. if you look at the world history
2: right and i'm not going to do it as much of a justice that's not my area of expertise yeah i have learned from i have learned from some of the best dr candace Rouser is amazing at explaining because she's, she's a black woman historian right specializes in world history african history african american history teaches politics Mm -hmm. just so happens because it all overlaps right Mm -hmm. so she talks about our people don't move like that see because black people particularly in the regions of africa they weren't about colonization Mm -mm. they weren't about imperialism if you look back there's a book called um william uh there's, there's a book called pursuit of power by william h McNeil. okay and he talks about how in europe World history dictates, and if you look at this and you study historically, white people were savage. Yeah. The Europeans were savage. They were all, on top of the fact that geographically speaking, they were all next to each other. Mm -hmm. They were all developing weapons at the same time. I Mm -hmm. mean, and you know, some of this gets a little dense, but they were attacking each other to overtake their land. Mm -hmm. And they, they were known for barbarism, like not Africans. And again, I you know she's an amazing contact. I don't know if y'all can have like another like another show that y'all have, but she's amazing at explaining it. But yeah, so our people don't move like that. But yes, as a matter of fact, when it comes down to you know what you were talking about, the rebellions and stuff, right, to fight
0: for rights. But mm-hmm. our people don't move like that. Our people are not about revenge. No, they're not. We're, that 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 isn't who we are. And I think that was one of the reasons. And that this is just me. Theorizing, I'm, I'm not an expert on world history, but I just, I can't help but wonder if that's partially what contributed to um, Europeans being able to colonize Africa because of the fact that we're not our, our African, you know, heritage doesn't allow for us to be revengeful people. You know, in fact, from what I've learned in my, you know, in my undergraduate studies, um, African people were very welcoming to different groups of people, and that may have contributed to again, colonialism because of the fact that they were so welcoming to Europeans. And then the, we can talk about the slave trade, but that actually, we're getting off topic. That's another another <laughs> yeah. episode. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that, 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 that is what I think that so many people fear, so many white people fear is revenge. And that's just not what we're looking for, not what we're seeking. We're just seeking equality and justice in this country that our ancestors pretty much built physically.
3: Correct, correct.
0: Um, did you guys want to have any, have any questions or wasn't there something that you guys wanted to address? Mercedes and Marcus.
4: Um, I just want to ask, um, what resources would you recommend for everyday people um, that want to learn about, uh, critical race theory? Yeah.
2: So I listed a couple, right. Mm-hmm. And I coincided them with the core tenets of critical race theory. The first one I'm going to talk about is the, obviously the book of the myth of race, which Chronicles the inception of Racism and, and, and How we even got here to this Day uh, And talks about again it debunks in Just the forward doesn't even have to get into the first Chapter the first, just the forward Completely ties into The first core tenet which again is that race is not Real right Biologically speaking he breaks down the science Boom then in the In the next couple of chapters I think it's just like 13 chapters The book's like 300 pages He's he masterfully Details how we got here, um, and how you know white people actually created racism. So that's the first one with the, cor- the first tenant, 1619 project, which you know, uh, you guys want some additional you know information on that. The 1619 project is an ongoing initiative. Boom, boom, <laughs> we got that. Read
0: through it this now. Why I always say,
2: boom. See, that's what I'm saying. This is why uh, this is one of those times you know the listeners can't see. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 1619 Project is an ongoing initiative from the New York, New York Times Magazine that began in August 2019. That's the 400th anniversary. We know that 1619 was the year that slaves first touched down in, on U.S. soil. Yeah, okay. yeah, 400th anniversary of the beginning of American slavery. It aims to reframe the country's history, by uh, placing the consequences of slavery and contributions of Black Americans at the very center of our national uh, conversation. So again, 1619 Project, that goes into... Uh, the second core tenet, which is explaining how racism and acknowledging that racism is real, even though race is not real, according to the first color of law, the color of law um, by Richard Rothstein, the book on that details the uh, segregation of America in housing, you know, all, it, it's, it's specifically in housing. And again, it, we can use it as a macro as a microcosm, right, of one of these examples. There are so many different examples, right? There's healthcare, there's education, there's housing, there's legal, right? There's everything. So Color of Law is an amazing book. Um, I would also say Dr. Candace Rouser, you know, I, let me just add her on there. <laughs> we just talked about her black woman, historian, amazing, amazing. Um, she has a whole bunch of different resources. She's actually a professor, right? And so she teaches this stuff, but she also has a podcast, which is called the facts before fiction podcast on Spotify. Uh, She also has a Patreon where she has in-depth political commentary, African-American history, African history, world history, Um, study timeline. I would also say for people to study the actual timeline of U.S. history, right, Um, to know Mm -hmm. from 1619 all the way to about, mm, I would say, 1865, where the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, and freed the slaves, and then you had you know, Reconstruction from eighteen sixty-five to eighteen seventy-seven. And by the way, what people don't really talk about often enough for me is that during that Reconstruction period, two thousand black men were actually elected
0: in the South to hold public office. People don't know that, and people don't talk about. And that. this is at the local, state, and federal um, level of government too, right?
2: Yes, yes. Two thousand black men wow. were elected to to holding office, and people don't. Now, it was after. It, there was a um, speech. President Lincoln went down to Louisiana, started talking about voting rights. Mm-hmm. Oh, funny enough that we, history repeats itself,
3: mm-hmm.
2: where we are now, right? Mm-hmm. So we have people. I mean, you have Abraham Lincoln goes gives a speech in Louisiana about voting rights. And he said, black people deserve the right to vote unequivocally. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he said. Three days later, he's assassinated. Now, here's the thing. Andrew Johnson becomes president. See, and this is the thing. People sometimes think politics and history is boring. You can make it juicy real quick. Oh, yeah. Andrew Johnson, Andrew Johnson bitch ass fumbled the bag because he comes in and he then, you know, says, nah, states, states have rights. Let the southern states do them. So they, he says states rights. So oh, the southern God. states, <laughs> the southern states, right, then start the Ku Klux Klan. States are... So they start coming in and they start disenfranchising voters. That's how they then created the Jim Crow laws. Mm -hmm. They started with the Black Codes, Black Code laws or Black Codes, which were basically to disenfranchise the working of African-American, right? Mm -hmm. So then from there, you had a whole bunch, till 1965, when the Voting Rights Act was actually passed, Civil Civil Rights Act was passed right
0: if you allow me to interject for just one second i love how you talk about the period from from the end of reconstruction into the jim crow era and then right into the civil rights era because that's one thing our history classes don't really do they focus on slavery and then they go immediately to the civil rights era but they completely don't they completely ignore the hundred year period of why the civil rights era had to come into being in the first place
2: yeah yeah like nobody talks about the ratification of the 13th Amendment and then the 15th Amendment, Amendment and, that there, and then it was the 15th Amendment that then people started getting cr- crazy, mm-hmm. right? Because literally the 15th Amendment bars states from depriving citizens of the right to vote based on race. Southern states began enacting measures such as poll taxes, literacy tests, all-white primaries, felony disenfranchisement laws, grandfather clauses, mm-hmm. fraud and intimidation to keep African Americans from the polls. What people don't talk about enough is that you know whites-only and colored-only that was, that's Jim Crow. We didn't just go from slavery to 1965. Exactly. So again, when you learn the actual history of the country, that's critical race theory mm-hmm. in practice, right? So yeah. Um, and then I would also say, um, that, that so understanding the, 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 the timeline of US history, that goes into the other core tenet and this is the fire by Don Lemon. It's another book. I w- is the last book that I would say. That's literally the last tenet. Voices of color, right? Because Don Lemon, and if we want to talk about it, it actually goes into tenant number five too, which is about intersectionality. Because he's a black gay man, mm-hmm. right? And he writes from a very personal lens how he feels we should be talking about racism in this country. Yeah, with with our friends, with our people, you know, with our people, and he talks about it with his family. But that's the
0: whole point, right? Awesome. These are great. These are great books. Um, definitely want to check them out. Um, didn't know about Don Lemon's book, so I really want to check that one out, too. Do you like supporting local business? How about Black own local business? Or even better, a Black female own local business? Well, if you do, we have the perfect business for you. Black Forward Clothing Inc. A new clothing brand owned and designed by Mercedes Scott, they have an array of affordable clothes such as t-shirts, jackets, hoodies, joggers, and even a face mask, so you can fight COVID in style. They say true to their slogan, it's more than a name, it's a power movement, by pushing their brand to bring awareness to mental health and anti-hate, so support the movement by supporting the brand. You can find a link for the store in the description below. We talked about um, our K-12 education and how, you know, that's pretty flawed in this country. What guidance would you give to K-12 educators who wanted to teach about critical race theory or um, anti-racism in an effective and equitable way?
2: Well, and that's, that's a hard question, right? Because mm-hmm. oftentimes we have to grapple with, as educators, now I'm, I'm, I'm in the um, college level. I, okay. I, can't, I can't do K-12, <laughs> I can't do K-12, but you know, whatever. But from a K-12 lens, in my perspective, it has to be age appropriate, right? If you look at Jane Elliott, again, third graders are learning about the brown-eyed, blue-eyed test and they, they learned about discrimination in four days, that is amazing. I mean, mm-hmm. if you look at the, there's an entire documentary that's free, free on YouTube, PBS Frontline, and, he, and, and, and she, she really details it at the time, right? She talks to the parents. She creates community meetings. She gets them on board with what's going to happen. She doesn't just one day decide to do it. Then, she actually does it, and those kids learned about discrimination without having to talk about skin color. I mean, you know, she ends up at one when in the debrief, she does talk about skin color. She's like, "So you didn't like when you were treated negatively because of your eye color? Would you want to be treated differently because of the color of your skin? Should we? The next time you see a black, she actually asks." The Next time you see a black person, are you gonna treat them negatively? No, no, Miss Elliot. That's the kids, right? it's so wow. beautiful. And it and it could be very, very impactful. So at a third grade level, you can do things like that. Once you get to the middle school grades, sixth through eighth grade, you can talk about slavery a little more robustly. We know what we're saying when we say it robustly. You yeah. can be a little more real about it. Once you get to high school, get more real. College, you should be getting real as hell. Like You should be talking about the fact that people were ripped limb to limb. You should be talking about the fact that people were beheaded and put on pipes and that kids had to walk through and see those decapitated heads on those pipes. Mm -hmm. You should be talking about how people were lynched. You should be talking about the fact that people were raped, right? All of that, all of that, but it has to be, everything has to be congruent. We cannot just go to say, first of all, we have to update the damn textbooks. You can't oh, say God. that yes. that white man wearing the Sphinx hat is it ain't that that's not real. Let's start up. let start there. Then we also got to talk about the fact that you know, from a perspective of colonialism, the Pilgrims was not having turkey with the Native Americans, and it wasn't. Mm-hmm. We should not be having a pizza party talking. We should we can talk about the history of Christopher Columbus in schools. We can talk at a primitive (laughs) level, at a primitive foundational and basic motherfucking level. We can talk about the fact that this was real stuff that was going on. And then you can talk about in in the sixth to eighth, genocide. Let's talk about it. Mm -hmm. We have to be real. So K-12, you want to be age appropriate, but you want to talk about the realities of this country. And you can do it in a way that is actual appropriate. Now you have to look at the, the literature with this, what that says. um. But, you know, that's how I would say we should do it.
0: I think that's a very effective way, um, especially how Jane Elliott, she was able to explain discrimination to her students in a way that they could understand it and then apply it to real life settings, to a real life situation where, you know, I mean, they were living at the time during the civil rights era. I think she said that they started, she did this experiment because Martin Luther King was one of their class heroes and he was, assassinated. Yes. So she wanted to be able to explain, you know, what his legacy what his legacy was going to be in a way that they could understand it. Um, so it's definitely possible. Um now my dad was definitely reading to me the narrative in life of Fre- of Frederick Douglass when I was in kindergarten. It probably wasn't the most <laughs> yeah. appropriate thing to do because I remember asking a lot of questions about some of the brutal things that were happening. And he was like I think he's that, at that point he was like, Yeah, maybe I shouldn't be reading this to you. Uh, but There are ways to, you know, appropriately educate your children on these issues in a way that isn't necessarily traumatizing, um, but in a way that they can understand and apply to real life. Yes, and Um, there's actually
2: one one of the doctors that um, usually comes to my show. Um, I don't want to say I don't know if I can say her name here, but um, her name is Dr. Opara, and she's amazing. She actually was with her seven-year-old daughter, and she was reading the 1619 Project. And she was turning the pages and reading it, and then her little her daughter would read pages as well. And then she turned the page, and she would see the picture of Frederick Douglass. She would see the picture of W. E. B. Du Bois, and she was able to say, "Mommy, mommy, that's W. E. B. Du Bois. That right there is beautiful."
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And again, not everybody, not every parent has the availability, resources, leisure time, whatever, because of lack of resources, or whatever, uh, to do that. But I'm just mm-hmm. saying there are ways to do it at different ages to make it age-appropriate, but actually still teach the truth.
0: Yeah, I mean, you could talk about whatever your child may be interested in. I'm sure that there's a Black historical figure that you could relate that to. Um, If you're someone who's interested in, if your child is interested in hair and makeup, you could teach them about, you know, Madam C.J. Walker and Black women who are entrepreneurs during that era. Like, there is a way to do it. But um, unfortunately, people are so afraid of I guess you could say, traumatizing their kids. And I'm speaking of white people particularly because black people are always, you know, we, as much trauma as we're dealing with from the past and still living with to this day, you know, that's not something that I guess would really scare us, if anything would empower us. But for white people, they don't want to address these things at all with their kids. They're, they're so concerned with calling them because, again, they're trying to uphold the system and, you know, absolve themselves from white guilt. Yes. Yeah, Mercedes, were you gonna say something?
4: I was just gonna second off what you were detailing. It's more of for them not wanting to put the mirror up and show the reflection of their history. Like this is what happened. We're not here to blame you, not here to guilt trip you, but to make you realize this is what happened. Um, it's still affecting us today, and we need to implement different you know laws and fix things we want change we want everyone to feel equal it's not us getting revenge and i just i don't know i guess it sometimes frustrates me because i'm learning more about this as an adult because as a kid in our schools like because i was raised in chicago and like we didn't really learn too much about i didn't know anything about mississippi black codes and stuff like that you know and it's more of me becoming an adult and taking time out and reading and learning our history. And I just feel for our culture cultural and our people that a lot of it is being erased, which it is. Um, I don't think that's a conspiracy at all because I've had conversations conversation with people. Um, and they're like, no, we still have history. And I'm like, the history that my little niece is learning, like, the way they're teaching about Christopher Columbus and like they barely do anything for February for Black History Month. And to me, that's upsetting and that's troubling. Um, so just them taking accountability, I think that's the biggest thing. Like acknowledge, acknowledging what has happened, the systematic laws that you put into place is detrimental to us. We, I've learned more about how the prison systems are run, those private organizations, how they're set up um i think we talked about the 13th the movie which is incredible yeah Mm -hmm. yes yes it's incredible and i do recommend everyone to watch it um and this is just me learning as an adult and i just feel like i still have so much to learn which i'm always open to but i just feel for like the kids and the next generation coming up like we have to keep the narrative of preserving our our culture i feel like
2: yes absolutely absolutely
0: did you have questions that you wanted to ask us um, to facilitate discussion at all, uh, Brian? Who me? Uh, yeah. yeah,
2: I mean, I think it's more so like, what what do you, in terms of you, what do you all do for for your professions? This would be the first thing because I want to see uh, like how we kind of integrate that critical race theory today.
4: Yeah, well, uh, most of us is in the corporate world, okay. corporate yeah. setting.
0: That's actually how we all met. We all worked at the same company, um, okay. mm-hmm. and we kind of all branched out in different um, areas. But I, right now, I'm a project manager at a tech company. Um, Sadie's.
4: Um, I'm a lead at a uh, at Grubhub holding.
1: Yep, and I just joined a logistics company at a entry level position. Nice. Yeah, so. Go ahead.
0: No, i to say, so. We're all kind of working in different fields, yeah. but we're all in the, in the corporate setting for the most part.
2: Yeah, so, and then with that, right, like, how do you guys feel, like, understanding the core tenets of critical race theory, right, and using it as a methodological framework to kind of critique the systems of oppression, how do you feel like you can do that in the corporate setting, or how do you feel like you guys have manifested that for
4: yourselves?
3: Oh,
1: that's a really good question.
4: It really is.
1: Um, I've never even thought about it if I'm being honest.
0: Same. Because I, I, a lot of the time I know the voices of color thesis kind of comes to mind because um it seems like now especially after you know the murder of George Floyd last year companies seem to be more concerned about diversity and, and inclusion and they even have special groups. I know my company does and they're always they seem to be uh, concerned about the 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 sensitivities and concerns the interests of their minority you know employees but it to me it, it's, it's it's a lot of talk i don't see where it's always a situation where they're going to implement different programs that actually benefit us directly or even do workshops within the organization on how they can you know I know my company, I think they're starting, they have been doing workshops recently, but I don't see a lot of like our leaders actually going to these uh, workshops and it would be more beneficial for them to be there because they have the ability to affect change within the organization. And I don't, I don't see where having these diversity and inclusion workshops is going to be beneficial unless people who are in power are 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 devoted to attending these events and learning from them and applying what's learned in those settings. Because I can share my experiences and my grievances with the organization, not necessarily with the organization, but like in, in life and in general. But if you're not going to actually take what I say into consideration and apply it to the company, to how the company is operated, then why are you offering this in the first place if you have no intention of actually doing anything with it? So that's that's kind of been my my main um, experience with that.
4: Yeah, going off, Nick, I can actually, I feel the same way, um, not to single out a company, so I'll just say a corporate <laughs> yeah. um, setting. To me, it's more after George Floyd, whatnot. Um, it's almost like, to me, I'm going to be honest, it's more of like fluff talk to me. Mm -hmm. Like, you're not really trying to dig deep into what's really going on. It's just more of, okay, let's, they sat in a meeting, let's send this email out saying, hey, we're here for you. We understand diversity, inclusion. And it's like, Mm -hmm. it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't feel that way at all. And I know it's like, oh, we have resources and you can do, but I haven't, personally, I haven't seen, it's more of, oh, you can reach out to HR and going off what Nick said, there's like no work workshops catered to it. I never hear leadership or whatnot um, speaking about it. And to me, it was just more of just a, a fluff. Like everyone was in this big meeting was like, hey, this is what we need to push out for these people. <laughs> Cause I feel like they have those meetings where they get together and like, okay, how can we handle this? And they just push it out. And there's really no initiative behind
1: it. it. It always feels like let's do this so we can cover our asses. So we can say that we acknowledged it and that we put something in place. But let's not. But we don't act, actually have to put any effort or time or money or energy into this. Here it is. We presented to you guys. That's all we wanted to do. So you can't say we didn't try. It's usually how it always felt. And for the most part, them trying is like some generic, generic, like, um, like video that they have you watch and take a little test on it, and that's it. Then they just walk away. Like, yeah, we gave you guys sensitivity training. No, you made me watch a 20 minute video, and then I had to like pass, get like a 95% to pass the course. That wasn't training. I learned nothing. I learned that the person who wrote this script is probably a white person who doesn't really understand what we go through in the workplace. Correct.
2: And not only that, but sometimes it's a module that you just go in there and you just press the video, you leave, you walk outside, you, you know, you walk your dog, you make something to eat, you come back, the video's Exactly done. what I do. And right. And then you do, I mean, let's be real. Then yeah. you go in there, then you do the quiz. And then the quiz is, there's nothing, there's nothing groundbreaking in the quiz. It's like, you know, Mm-mm. one answer is way better than all the other ones. Like all three racist answers, one answer is like the one that's like the most politically correct. And it's probably like like three paragraphs long,
3: right? Mm-hmm. And it has a bunch should... of buzzwords.
2: Right. <laughs> and that's the one that you're like, okay, boom. And then, you know, people don't learn. And unfortunately, the people who really need that training are the people who either, A, sometimes don't show up because they take a sick day.
3: <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. <laughs> or, I mean, let's be real. Nick, Nick are we being real? We're like, being very real. Like, so <laughs> the people who need to be at those trainings don't show up.
0: Don't show up. That's why I said leaders never show up to these, to these trainings. And they're the ones in, with the power to actually affect change within the organization. But they're nice. not there.
2: Right. So, I mean, you have that. You know, and some organizations st- strive to do it right. And I, I mean, sometimes you have, like, I'm speaking from the university setting. So, from the university setting, sometimes universities get it wrong, too. Like, yeah. it's not this misconception that they're like, oh, they No. I've been in a university, they got it completely wrong. I've also been in a university where they tasked people. And I was actually one of, the, one of the ones, I was as a graduate intern from Montclair State University. I actually created alongside one of their complex directors. Uh, I was a power professor. I was a grad student. He was a, a professional staff member. And I created the diversity curriculum slash diversity conference day because they only had a four hour module on implicit bias and microaggressions. You can't teach that. In four hours and expect that everybody's going to understand it first and foremost right. people are going to check out second second of all it's not all about microaggressions i'm more data driven again i told y'all earlier in the broadcast i am a scholar practitioner right i put the scholar first which means i do the information the research to then inform my practice so when i go in there i'm data driven i'm like what is the population of your of your of your students right you're an msi minority serving institution which means that more than 25 percent of your Uh, student population is Hispanic. It's an HSI, Hispanic-serving institution as well. So if you look at that, what are we doing to meet their needs? Okay, let's look at it even further. A big portion of your student population, particularly your residential population, the ones who live on campus, are first generation in their family to go to college. What resources do they know about? Let's partner up with the, I don't know what y'all call it in different parts of the country, but there's an EOF program. That's what it was in New Jersey. EOF, Educational Opportunity Fund. Uh, first generation in your family to go to college. You are predominantly a student of color and you have high um, need monetarily, right? Mm-hmm. So you go to this program, they assign you a counselor, you have a summer institute that you do, and then you also take classes and you, you they prepare you for college because you, the, the idea is you didn't have anybody in your family to explain to you, hey, look, this is what office hours are, right? Hey, look, this is what the yeah. registrar's office are, the, the bursar's office. You don't have that. So There's an additional need there. So why are they not connecting with these counselors? Why do we not have a panel of other graduated seniors, right, who are going to be on this panel who can speak to them in a language that they're gonna understand, Mm -hmm. but also for people to choose their own adventure. They get to choose what sessions they wanna go to. You have a lot of students with food insecurity. Why is there not a panel on food insecurity? And you have the the, the professional who works in that office, the food pantry on campus that y'all just established. To come in and speak to your students about how to provide the resources to their students about it right so think about it from a larger lens it's not just microaggressions and implicit bias yes you can have a training session on that but that's not the be all end all and so this is what we're talking about so some universities get it right and some people task people the right way to do it and get it right um but yeah from from your perspective in corporate because i've never worked in corporate it's absolutely correct, and I would imagine how difficult it is to try to get through to a, to a supervisor, a boss, like y'all. Y'all the ones that motherfucker need to be go- going to these things.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Here's my and other question.
0: Okay, go ahead. No, go ahead. What were we gonna say? I
2: was gonna say I have another question for y'all. Yeah, yeah. Switching gears a little bit mm-hmm. to now, 2022. Right, we're in a, we're in a. Uh, I know people. Some people don't want to call it a midterm election, but it's an election cycle right? Yeah, we're now getting to a point where people need to vote.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But black people are disillusioned with voting clearly, right?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, how in your perspectives? What do you think? Right? And then using also the critical race theory kind of mentality framework model. How do we incentivize? How do we motivate, encourage,
1: empower black people to vote? I think we have to tackle that notion that our vote doesn't count. I feel like as long as as long as as long as our people are in that that space of our vote doesn't count, what we want doesn't matter. We're just here for to say we have democracy. I think we're going to be stuck where they just don't want to vote because that's usually what I hear from like my friends and family who don't vote. They're just like, does it really matter if I vote or not? They're gonna they're gonna pick who they want to be the president. They're gonna pick who they want in office. We're just here for a dog and pony show.
0: Oh, definitely. There's a lot of um, misconceptions about voting too, Uh, and especially with our our current political system. um, There's always a lot of, oh, we are trying to vote for the lesser of two evils, and both parties are demonized. But it's pretty clear to me that there's one party in particular that's very, very problematic, and we shouldn't be voting with. They don't have our at heart at all, but people are, people are sh- always shitting on the other party that has actually made some pretty, you know, significant um, contributions to help, you know, Black Americans. Um, I think it's pretty obvious which parties I'm talking about. But um, I think yeah. there's a lot of misunderstanding regarding that. I think people, people spend too much time fixating on federal politics and not enough on local and state politics, which I think affects you on a daily basis, which, you know, I'm all... <laughs> yeah, I'm always encouraging people like you know voting your local elections too. You know, don't just not vote because you feel like the federal government sucks or whatever. Because what happens to you on a on a on a local level is more, um, I think, occurs to you, it impacts you more, or you know, more instantly than something that happens on a federal level, because. This is these are your judges, these these are your you know your mayor, you know, all of your representatives in your in your district or whatever, like these are the people whose law who's, you know, who impact your day-to-day life. It's not just the federal government. But if we are gonna talk about, you know, federal politics too, I think it's important that we educate ourselves or, you know, at least learn how to be more informed constituents and understand how politics works because Right now we don't have the I'll say we the Democrats don't really have a majority and a lot of the a lot of the you know policies that you, that people want implemented aren't going to be implemented if we don't have a majority in Congress. So while you all are complaining about this particular democrat or that particular democrat you're missing the opportunity to come together close ranks as a party obtain a majority so that we can potentially address the policies that we want. And I I keep trying to, you know, share that perspective with, you know, disin, disillusioned um, voters, specifically disillusioned Black voters, but it's very difficult to get through to them because of, you know, just the history of all of the um, marginalization that we've experienced in this country as a result of, you know, political you know, legislations and things like the legislation and things like that. So
2: Nick, if you don't come all the way through through this motherfucker <laughs> and spit that word, like <laughs> yes, absolutely. Mercedes.
4: Yes, uh going off with Nick and Mark. Um I completely agree. Um I also feel too like let's change the dynamic of informing people. I mean everybody spend their time on TikTok and Twitter and you know Mm. rap songs and stuff like let's you know get creative with it you know to catch people ear draw people in to educate them and be informed on what's going on period i think that would definitely help i saw a
1: lot of that um during the the election the 2020 election i saw a lot of people like yeah this is why we should vote for biden this is why you shouldn't vote for trump i saw it both ways i was like people are using tiktok they're using instagram which i was like this is this is great like this is where these are where the kids and the people who are going to be voting, or just coming into their, their, their eligibility to vote, spend most of their day. So this is where you, where you hit them. And I think we have to start. We have to emphasize how important the midterm elections are. Yes. Most people most people think you vote for the president. That's it. I'm like, no. The president can only do so much, but he needs he needs the house. He needs the senate. And if you don't go and vote for those elections, then the president is just there and they're going to decline everything he does. Right. But who who are they going to blame? The president. He can only do so much. So, we need to like push, like you need to go out and vote for every election, for even the local elections. Go vote for your for your local mayor, for your, for your governor. You need to get the people in office at every level in order for change to be to be made. You can't drop the ball.
2: Absolutely. And here's my other thing, right? Cuz you guys hit the nails all on the head. Here's the other thing I want to talk about. Misinformation and disinformation.
0: I was just going to say something about that. Yes. (laughs) Misinformation
2: and disinformation. Right. Because with that comes the bullshit that we have. Right. So you have Tucker Carlson, Sean Mm -hmm. Hannity, Laura Ingram on Fox News. They have the entire primetime lineup, which is so funny because they present their things as facts. All of their segments, they present them as facts. They present them as news. But when they got challenged about it, because they were pushing the lie, the big, what is called the big lie, right? The big lie. The big lie that Trump actually won the election and that there it was rigged and whatever. When they got challenged on it, their attorneys went to court and explicitly said, no one thinks that this is actually fact. This is all for entertainment purposes. And no one should take anything that Tucker Carlson says as fact. So basically what they're saying off-screen is that all of this is entertainment. All of this is bullshit. Basically what they're saying in court. And they actually were
1: saved off of that, off of that um, uh, defense. I and- feel like that should be illegal because they're presented as facts, as news journalists on a news program. Mm-hmm. That should have certain consequences behind it. You would think. Right. Do they
0: have a? Do they ever make a disclaimer? Because I don't really watch Fox News. My granddad does because he likes to. He he finds it entertaining. But if they're not saying that this is just for entertainment purposes, then how are your um how are the audience supposed to be able to decipher that? Because a lot of them tune in and think that these people they they put a lot of trust into their journalists, their favorite ones in particular, and. If they're not being told that this is for entertainment purposes only, they're taking this as fact and they're going home. That's how we ended up having the, the January sixth, or well, that's part of it. Like a lot of, the, a lot if of. The you don't that... come all
2: the way through <laughs> this motherfucker, like the, seriously.
0: The, the 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 a lot of the, from the lawsuits and the um, convictions that have occurred so far, many of them have said that they that Fox News um, and some of what they saw on the internet is what inspired them to. Pursue this in the first place. Yes. So it's obviously it's obvious that they're taking this to heart and that they believe everything that's being said on a Tucker Carlson show and your Sean Hannity's or whatever. Um, I don't like the la- that other one. She's I don't even want to acknowledge her because. Mm. Laura Ingram,
2: listen. Let me say this. Yeah. Let me say this. The misinformation and disinformation that has been happening is absolutely. It should be illegal. And mm-hmm. we're gonna actually talk about this um to- tomorrow on my show. Um, we're going to be talking about cancel culture, part two, because we started off with, you know, your R. Kellys. We started with your Trey songs. We started with your Chris Browns. We started with all of those. Do we separate the artist from the artwork? That was the conversation last week on Sunday. This one, we started to expand it. People started talking about Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Green, Bill Clinton. You know mm-hmm. the whole situation now. Bill Clinton, y'all know. And so you have all these things. So people were talking about. There's this one guy. He made an amazing point, and he said this. He said that when we talk about cancel culture, it's really the the left canceling the left because if it wasn't the left canceling the left, Tucker Carlson wouldn't have an international platform on Fox News talking to millions of people and he'd be canceled. Donald Trump would be canceled and a whole host of other people would be canceled because they're consistently and insistently spreading lies, misinformation and disinformation. Now, here's the other thing. When we talk about voting, here's my opinion on that. People are disillusioned with voting because of the history of this country. Yes, and absolutely we understand that. But here's the problem. They want you to think that your vote doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. 2020 was the best example as to why voting does matter. Y'all wanted Trump out of office? An active electorate, the most in history, voted during this 2020 election.
3: Mm-hmm. Joe
2: Biden got the most, uh, the most votes In elections history in
0: this country. Say that.
2: And so now that's not alleged, by the way, because people would say, oh, I got alleged. No, it's not a lie. None of the shit was rigged. There's no voter fraud. There's literally no evidence of voter fraud. So he is and still stands as the president with the most votes, elected with the most votes. So when you see that, you see another example. You see Georgia. Georgia flipped blue.
0: Georgia flipped blue. That was the most exciting thing I've seen in politics in a long, long time, honestly. A ruby
2: ruby red state that hadn't flipped blue since the 1980s. Flipped blue because of Stacey Abrams. Yes. Let's talk about her. Stacey Abrams, legend, icon, Stacey Abrams, registering people to vote. And I would add Latasha Brown in there, but she's pissed me off because she talks some bullshit.
0: She wasn't supposed (laughs) to be talking... She ain't know no yeah. damn. Did
2: y'all did y'all hear about the Latasha Brown situation?
0: I saw y'all talking about it on Twitter, but I didn't have enough time to dive into it.
2: Well, let me We're let me give there. you let me
4: give you a quick form us. Yes,
2: so Latasha Brown has she's a she's a civil rights activist. She she considers herself someone who is like, you know, like Stacey Abrams in that same regard where she likes to work at during the election cycles to register people to vote. She actually has a campaign. I can't remember off the top of my head which one. Um, which one is called black black votes matter um, black votes matter i think it's that one right okay so black votes matter so latasha brown heads that great fantastic we love it right because you're, you're doing the outreach work you're actually based in georgia and you're putting up a... here's the thing she's now attacking president biden and, and madam vice president kamala harris saying they're not doing enough on voting rights here's the thing latasha brown if you know anything about how Congress works. Or how anything, how our government functions, you understand one thing to be true: you understand that the legislation is passed in Congress, that the president has been doing what he's supposed to do. He goes in, he has conversations, right? He is part of the production of legislation as the president of the mm-hmm. United States, and he is part of part of that production is having conversations. He's brought uh, Kirsten uh, Cinema and Joe Manchin. The two senators who are stalling that 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 bill, the Democrats who are stalling that bill in the Senate because they, they wouldn't they won't carve out a special like rule out of the filibuster t- in order to continue to, to, to move uh, the, the bill with a 51 majority. Right. So they won't do that. So she's saying you're not putting enough pressure on Cinema and Mansion, You're not doing enough. She literally said, don't come to Georgia without a plan. First of all, who the fuck are you to be telling the president of the United States not to come through? First and foremost, second of all, he's coming to speak to the constituents face to face. You want him to come through. You want yes, him to continue to, to put more pressure. Because, again, this is the pressure of the bully pulpit. president of the United States goes state to state doing press conferences, doing rallies that sways public opinion. When Once public opinion is swayed, they start to call their own state legislatures. And start calling their senators and saying we want you to vote for this damn bill or we're not voting for you and it's all about power you don't get votes mm-hmm. you don't get the seat. you don't get the seat you don't come you don't get the one hundred seventy-four thousand dollars a year check that you cut you get with being on in the senate right okay exactly so he's doing what he's supposed to do he's speaking to his constituents and you're over here talking about she he, she was invited twice to come meet with the president of the united states to see what they could do you denied it twice And then you're on Twitter, running your mouth, talking about some, if I had the opportunity and privilege to sit down with the president of the United States to speak to him about voting rights, because I feel like they weren't doing enough and they wanted to honor me with the time to have the conversation, to get my recommendations on what they should be doing in order for my standards and expectations of them doing enough actually is you damn right. I'm going to take that damn opportunity. You have some fucking gall and some fucking gumption. And I'm all pro black women all day, every day. But you putting some bullshit out in the air because this comes with voter suppression. The same shit you trying to fight Republicans from doing. The same mm-hmm. they they suppressing the vote. It's the same thing you doing in another way. You're suppressing the vote because you're telling people essentially Joe Biden ain't doing shit. Don't vote for him. And right. now who the fuck yeah. you're gonna vote for? Jill Stein, third party candidate. Who are you going to vote for? The Republicans? You'll never get student cancellation at that. You'll never get none of this shit that you want to get passed. Right. But you you're acting a fool. Vote. Right? you split splitting the vote. And people don't know what that means, but they split splitting the vote. You, you're voting for somebody else. We live in a two-party system. Republicans or Democrats. It's one or the other. I'm sorry. An independent candidate has not gotten any success in the last... When was the last time? Ross Perot? Okay. Never mind. So... You have a two-party system. You're either going to get Republican or a Democrat. And you not voting for either one of those is a waste of your vote. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to tell you.
0: It is. Um, I think people forget, too, that Black folks are pretty strategic when it comes to how we vote. At least the ones who are, you know, more informed tend to be more... Like, they understand, okay, well, yes, we have to vote Democrat, but we're not just going to vote Democrat for president, you know, there are so many other offices too that can work alongside the president to help get our agenda pushed or what, you know, at least the campaign promises and whatnot that appeal to us or whatever. Um, but people, I just, they, they're, they're not understanding it. They're, they're being misinformed by people. Votes are being split. Um, and that's why I say it's important that people understand the the significance of closing ranks because the Republicans do it all the time. They don't have a problem. Like, they all voted for Donald Trump. Hello, there was no reason why that that person that should have been our president um, the last you know four years, but and no one thought he was actually going to win. But
2: I did. I did. I was I was in school studying in it and everybody laughed mm. at me. See, this is the thing. I was looking beyond it. I'm a, I'm a political science major and I was in school when we were when he was running for office against uh, Hillary. And everybody said Hillary was going to win in a landslide. We actually had a school pro- mm. a, a class project in our political campaigning course, which wasn't taught by a professor. It was actually taught by a Republican and a Democratic strategist who they were friends in real life. But they duped it out on many, many things. Right campaigns, so the whole thing was there was a thing, and you had to project who was going to win. I looked at not only what the polls were saying, I looked at the rallies, I looked at the social media uh, uh, strategies, yeah. I looked at the strategies of what states he was going to. He went, to, he attacked the Rust Belt states. Mm-hmm. That's the ones he flipped: Ohio, Pennsylvania, uh, yes. Wisconsin, Michigan. Michigan. Those are the ones he flipped. So when he when he, when he did that. And I saw the Democrats weren't going to the Rust Belt states enough. I'm like, that's a problem. Yeah. That's a problem. Because now you're hitting a certain electorate that feels, feels like they've been left out. So now... I saw it coming. Yeah, you did that. And then you, and you also have to look at the billions of dollars of earned media that he mm. got. Because he was just saying the most outrageous shit and being on 24-hour news cycles all day. And
0: that day. matters. Uh, <laughs> Money does. matters, it really does. people. <laughs>
1: But I saw it coming because I was in college at that time. So I would hear people out loud, like, oh, Donald's not gonna win. We're gonna vote Hillary, we're gonna vote Hillary. But I would see people's reactions when that was being said. They wouldn't say anything. Or they would vocally express, like, yeah, of course we're gonna vote for Hillary. But I was like, no, no, that no they're not. They're just saying that because they don't wanna they don't wanna cause drama right. right now. But when they walk into that poll, they're gonna vote for Trump. I was also Engaged to someone who <laughs> voted for Trump, and I watched like him. I watched him as he went from "I'm gonna vote for Hillary," and then all of a sudden, it was Hillary is the reason everything happened. That like, everything happened when she was what was she again? Uh, um, I completely forgot.
0: During the uh, Obama was, administration.
1: Yeah, during Obama administration, with like with her computer being hacked and causing a disaster. I was like, I was like, where are you getting this from? He's like, well, I've been listening and I've been talking to people and Donald Trump is just so polarizing. I was like, if that's why you're going to vote for him, he's not afraid to say how it is. Mm. And I was like, I was like, I was like, and that's what you want in a president, someone who's unfiltered, who just says whatever he wants. That's what you want representing our country. And I feel like a lot of people, he was like, his main point was the pc culture is taking over and i don't and i don't like that i like, I don't like my voice and my freedom of speech being attacked a
2: lot of people felt yeah. that way though and that's the that white people who felt like their country was being taken away from them by black people and people of color in general felt that they were the vo- they were he was the voice for mm-hmm. them he was the voice for them and when he was saying he was just speaking his mind and just he didn't have a filter and originally, his entire campaign was like, no, no, don't do that. Don't do that. That's going to kill you. And that got him more ratings. He just decided to do that we more. Were just, and that's what ended up. Yeah, we
0: were all just like, what's he going to say next? That's what everybody was just... That's what made the debates um, interesting. That's what made... You know, anytime a headline came out, Donald Trump said this, Donald Trump said that, and you're like, wow, like, this guy is... I was... And see, I was naive at the time, and I just thought that there's no way that people are going to vote for this um for this imbecile like there's just no reason there's no logical reason for someone to vote for him so i have enough faith in the american people to not vote for this person and my god i was I working that night um no. i was working overnight at the time and when i saw i was like my god he is actually going to win and he won and i i couldn't i i i couldn't, be, I couldn't believe it and it really made me just it really Made me question my world view, well, my view on American politics and the American public in general, because I was just completely oblivious to the idea that that someone like Donald Trump could become president. Given for me personally,
4: I kind of saw it coming, because everyone loves a shit show. He's reality TV. It was basically just a reality TV show to him, like, and people were just tuning in and loving it.
1: The rest of the world was tuning in, watching. But that's what makes it so
0: scary—the fact that. Oh yeah. Were you even taking mm-hmm. is taking this serious? Like the 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 position of president in the United States of America, you, it's it's a joke to him.
2: Correct. Correct.
0: I oh mean, yeah, he, it
4: absolutely was. A lot
0: of people said he didn't even want to. win. I don't think he did. He I, I, mm-hmm. I, I honestly I heard don't think. That too. I think he. I honestly th- think he thought he wasn't going to win either, but I think he was just doing it for fun. Or, you know, for, for, for many other reasons, too. I'm pretty sure money was part of it. But, um, and he has a really big ego, too. But, um, yeah, yeah. When he, and. I don't think he was ready was, for Definitely wasn't ready for the job. Like, got qualified I, either, but who yeah, am I to say yeah, that?
2: Yeah, no, no, yeah, and that's what I mean. But what I mean by that is he has multiple, multiple times said, this is harder than I thought. He said it publicly. He said, like, this is harder than I thought. I think in his mind, he thought. You know, I, I, you know, I'm not gonna, do, I'm not gonna win. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do this, and, and I mean for the money, really too, because you, you make so much money running for office. Than you do, you know, actually, but whatever, and you know, so there's a lot that goes with uh-huh. that, but even with, even with the campaigning afterwards, like he made so much money off of the big lie, so many people, and a lot of the money he made millions of dollars. Telling people to contribute because oh we're gonna fight and we're gonna fight these uh law and what he did was he used all those millions of dollars to pay off
0: all the attorney battles that he all his attorney he needed the money. I mean, he was a he failed businessman. I don't. I, I still don't understand right. how people connected that to oh this is president material. A failed businessman.
1: And trusted him with our economy. Like, come on, all these bankruptcies, and you think he's he's the person we should have in charge of our economy? Well, it was because on, it people.
2: was because of how he built his image, being on NBC, being considered yep. the, appre- the apprentice and Celebrity Apprentice. You have someone who's sitting behind a boardroom table. By the way, his show. You you don't see him to the last ten minutes of the show where he's firing somebody, so he's in a boardroom. He has the Trump Tower. You know, he built this. I mean, there's a documentary that talks about how he actually called people mm. from magazines and acted like he was his own PR agent and said, no, no, you I mean, he has billions of dollars and people would publish that and people have recordings. They've played those recordings on the and you can hear it's his voice. Not only that, when he then got invited to TV and started doing more TV appearances, he created this brand around him that that's what it looked like that He had a whole bunch of money because he was living in a penthouse and a tower and everything was in gold and all it that it was stuff. tacky. And what you would it right. And so what you then had was people asking him, How much your how much is your net worth? And if you notice in every single TV appearance during that time, he never said what his never. net worth was. He was just like, Oh, I don't know. I think it's just too much to count. He would always say things like that to keep it people like all interested. He was one of the things he was good at was marketing mm-hmm. and speaking. But that's it. Like he was not, you know, bankrupt. Mark, you're absolutely correct. All of those damn
0: bankruptcies? Jeez. It's messy. And that's probably one of the reasons why he did not want to release his tax information. I mean, he fought like hell to that made keep me... that um, closed. You know, keep
1: that information sealed. That made me so mad. He fought tooth and nail to keep his tax information closed. But Obama not being able to present his birth certificate... <sighs> He went on a fucking media store about that. I'm like, but when the tables are turned, it's different. And then everyone's like, he don't gotta see he, he don't gotta produce his um his his tax his tax information. But weren't y'all all on the birthday exactly. train about like eight years ago? And then it also I just hated how he used the highest office in America to spew outwardly all his like racial and hateful rhetoric. Like yeah, we have presidents who who do some slick shit on the side, but it's usually like they usually throw it throw it like throw some shit up in a, like in a in a bill or a law. But no, he just really just says, you know, yeah, the Mexicans are are, are rapists and, and and murderers. And I'm like, I'm like, and this this is the pe- this is the person y'all voted for.
0: Unacceptable.
1: And then the LGBTQ members who who voted for him, I was like, he don't I... care about y'all. Yes, he do. He's gonna he's gonna make change. And then what did he do? He made it so tra- tra- transgender people couldn't serve in the army.
0: An army that's desperately needing more people to serve in it, from what I've read.
1: Yes, <laughs> an army that hates the LGBT community and minority communities. But currently, that's mostly people who are who joined armed forces. They're the they're the, the, the it's minorities. It's LGBTQ. But y'all let. Y'all president spew all this hateful stuff and now y'all turning on them.
2: And not only that, but and his administration rolled back a lot of LGBTQ yes. language from the White House website. I mean, there was just a whole bunch. And that's the mm-hmm. stuff
3: that people um, don't pay attention well, to.
2: <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. Nope. So, you know, whatever. Vote. Vote, people. Vote. And Barack Obama said, don't boo,
1: vote. And do that.
4: Sadie, do you have a question you want to ask? I'm all good on my end. I learned so much.
0: Um, I think we, we, re- we actually went over everything. I did want to mm-hmm. ask you, because we were talking about misinformation being spread. What can we do to help combat the spread of misinformation as it pertains to critical race theory and, you know, other important issues as well?
2: I mean, everybody is a, everybody's an activist in their own way, right? So one of the things that I always say, if you now have the knowledge, you're more equipped to have conversations about it with your friends. Do more research on it, right? Not, I mean, we can't get to all of it in critical race theory, all of it in one hour, one hour, 40 minutes, two hours. So it's important that everybody's consistently doing the research. Do your own homework, right? For people who are listening, do your own homework on critical race theory, the history of this country, the inception of racism, look at the resources that we talked about. You also wanna make sure that once you are getting the necessary information that you're then reporting out. So having conversations with people in your social circles, oftentimes we like at work always wanna tell people like, oh, let's let's talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion at work. But sometimes in a lot of cases, a lot of people don't talk about that with their own friends. And if you're not talking about it with your own friends, your own family, your own personal social circles outside of work, how comfortable are you going to be able to speak about it at work with people who you just probably met that year or you know are just in you know that type of connection, mm-hmm. right? So I think it's definitely that. R- report out, have conversations, dispel the myths of voting, dispel the myths of you know, the power structures that that exist. Right. So talk about them um, and then talk about why it's important. And how we can change them. And I think one of the biggest ways that we can change them is by being an active electorate. Yeah. Right? Getting people to vote. Because again, people who have your best interests at heart, when you vote them in, those are the priorities and agenda items. And again, it's not all about just, you know, because sometimes you may be in, an, in a district where somebody who's running doesn't have your own racial identity or ethnic identity or national identity, but you want to think about all the other things that they do have. Socioeconomic status identity, right? If they have, you know, if they're first generation in their family to go to college, some of the same lived experiences, do your this work.
0: This is why intersectionality is work. so important, people. <laughs> this is why intersectionality is so important.
2: Understand what your own salient identities are and then look for them, but then also inform your practice. So do that. um I mean, those would be the biggest ones. I mean, you know, everybody who works in different areas, like, I, again, I work in, in the education system. And my main reason to coming into the education system was to mentor students, you know, to course correct because I didn't have the necessary mentorship um kind of resources. I didn't have someone who can explain to me the hidden curriculums of a university. Um, I also wanted to get a higher degree and I, you know, for me, I'm gonna go get my doctorate. That's coming. I was gonna ask you about that. <laughs> <But> my, <laughs> yeah, my, my doctorate is coming. Um and I'm, I'm, by the way, I'm 25. I turned 26 in February 1st. If I get my doctorate started at 27, I'll be a doctor of education by 30. But the thing about that is once I have that credential, I want to be sitting in rooms and boardrooms that influence systemic changes, whether it's within hiring practices, which I kind of do already now, whether it's with training practices, making sure that they're actually uh, informed by the research and the, the scholarly articles, the books, peer-reviewed journals, uh, literature review, et cetera, right? Like it's doing all of that work. Everybody's going to be something different. Mm -hmm. You know, your social activism is going to look very different depending on what you do and your sphere of influence. So y'all just do the homework, do the research and move forward from
0: there. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you again, Ryan, for taking the time out of your schedule to meet with us today and to discuss these important topics. Um, let everyone know where they can listen to your podcast, and you know when do you, when do you host your podcast?
2: Yeah, so the mentally divine podcast is hosted on Twitter Spaces Sundays and Thursdays at eight p.m. Eastern time. Um, my Twitter handles at mentally divine at mentally divine. Exactly how you would spell mentally, and then divine just put it together and go ahead and look it up on Twitter, and then just follow me, and you can see my show cards that I post post up. Um. You can also follow me on Instagram at mentally divine official. You can follow me there on Instagram you can follow my YouTube page, which is mentally divine right now. I only have two, um, uh, videos, which are the Fox soul episodes that I've been on. So, um, if you go into the, um, the, the description boxes, you can see that I've also been featured on Fox soul TV. So you can see the full episodes, episodes one and two, I was there, um, uh, debating abortion, um, as a human, right. Um, you can also now go to my link tree on both of my pages either Instagram or Twitter. And you can see where at all the places you can find me. My cash app is there. And I will also be putting up my Patreon link um, because I'm rolling out my Patreon. So y'all get in the exclusive right I'm now. Excited. I'm going to be doing immensely. Yes. Immensely divine morning show, which we're going to be doing audio visual. Um, and it's going to be exciting. We partnered up with Patreon and we're going to be, we're going to be rolling it out. It's going to be great, great, great
0: stuff. Oh, well, we're all looking forward to it and expecting great things from you, Brian.
2: Thank you so much, Nick. Thank you so much uh sadie's thank you so much mark shout, uh, listen that's how i always do it on my, on my yeah. podcast shout out nick on the check-in shout out marcus on the check-in <laughs> shout out sadie's on the check-in thank y'all so much for even having me again i always say i'm honored the fact that y'all reached out these are conversations that are supposed the, the, that we're supposed to have so i appreciate the fact that y'all are again having these conversations and letting your viewers and listeners know that this is some shit we got to really talk about and i appreciate y'all
0: Should we do an intro?